This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, there's a new survey that you are really excited to bring into this week's episode. What's it about? Yeah, it's a BBH survey of a variety of investors. I love ETF surveys, Joel. I really do. Because I get all the flow data and volume data and price data and holdings data. You know, the terminal is full of all kinds of data. data. It's like a giant candy store. But we don't have survey data, not like this. And I love looking through it because it helps you sort of align the hard data with the anecdotal data. This is why I go to conferences and hang in the hallways. I want to hear from people, what are you thinking and doing? To me, that's half of our job. So this survey, especially this one, I looked through it and I got two notes out of it and some interesting data points here. Some stuff I expect, some stuff I didn't. But I thought it'd be cool to ask about some of the particulars in this really, really thorough survey about how people feel about ETFs, what they're planning, different categories. Uh, There's a lot to chew on here. So to help us chew on that uh, and these uh, responses, we're going to be joined by Sean McNinch. He's the global head of ETFs at Brown Brothers Harriman. This survey is called Exchange Thoughts. It's the 10th annual global ETF investor survey. This time on Trillions, survey says, Sean, welcome to Trillions. Thanks for having me. Okay, so 10 annual surveys, a little bit's changed in that time. What do you, what's the big high-level takeaway from, from what's changed over that decade of, of the survey? I think it's just the evolution of the ETF market overall. You know, if you think about ETFs, you know, they are really now core at the center of a lot of the investors' allocation strategy. Um, you know, more and more usage of ETFs, more asset classes, more structures. You know, if you look at some of the results of the survey, you know, 60% of the investors we polled are planning to increase their usage of ETFs. And it's no longer just a passive product, right? It's, it's really moving into active, moving into new asset classes such as fixed income. And so there's, a, there's just more and more usage of ETFs in the marketplace than, you know, than, than there was ever before, you know, since we started this survey 10 years ago. And there's 325 global respondents to this. They're managing more than, 40% are managing more than a billion in assets. So this is also kind of an institutional crowd, right? And you've broken them down by the U.S., Europe, and then greater China. When you, when you kind of think about that, that um, global distribution, 
what were the takeaways for the U.S. audience that that you thought um, were particularly interesting? Yeah, no, I, I think it's, you know, the asset classes that they're using and the, and the more and more demand, you know, if you look at some of those surveys results for the U.S. investors, you know, about 46% of those investors are planning to increase their usage of fixed income ETFs, right? And that's relatively a newer asset class, the ETF wrapper. Uh, there's, there's less products out there, more and more of the new products that are coming out um, have a fixed income bent to them. And that's obviously of interest to investors as they are looking at rising interest rates and, and how do we kind of diversify the risk from equity to to uh, fixed income and other asset classes. Yeah, that fixed income bit came out in the surveys. The ESG uh, responses popped to me, which I know Eric's going to want to say something about. What 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 did you write your, your Bloomberg intelligence notes about, Eric? Yeah, uh, the first note I wrote was the uh, early in this uh, survey guide, I guess you call it, 25 pages. Uh, here's the question. What is the most important factor when selecting an ETF? Th- this, All the surveys have this. I love seeing where this ends. Number one, expense ratio. Number two, ETF issuer. Now, last year, issuer was one, expense ratio two. What does that tell you? Those two things are joined at the hip. And when we think about flows every year, you know, it's now become the big two, Vanguard, BlackRock, um, yet, there's definitely a, plenty of money for everybody else. It's a big tent. That said, you have to just acknowledge how big they are. So my note was sort of equating BlackRock and Vanguard ETFs to IBM stock in the 80s, where an advisor would be like, you can't get fired for buying IBM. Like, who could really you know, diss you for that or get upset if you're a client? It'd be hard to really get mad at an advisor or fire them if they put you in BlackRock or Vanguard ETFs. It's a career risk motivated move as long as a low cost move. And so, because some people say, well, why do they they get all the assets and the flows when everybody has cheap ETFs? I'm like, well, the brand matters too. And so I guess, Sean, you know, that those responses kind of, I think, tune in or connect with the flows. Or did you see something different there? No, I think that that's obviously right. And and obviously the big three with with Vanguard, BlackRock, and... um, SSGA, you know, having the line share, the market share, you know, that, that's definitely the case as, as people are looking to buy passive products. And as you're looking at, you know, where flows are going uh, and more and more entrants coming in here, that may change as we look to the active ETF space, right? And it's still relatively small, fertile ground. Um, and, you know, it's only about 5% of the total assets are made up of active ETFs. But I, I completely agree with you on, on the passive side. More and more investors are really looking at expense ratio and the brand when selecting passive vehicles, but that could change as we get into different types of um, you know ETFs. And the the BlackRock and Vanguard ETFs are also becoming some of the most liquid. Once these puppies are cheap, broad, liquid, like as liquid as like a trading over a billion a day, look out. I mean, these things are going to rule the land for 20, 30 years. One other interesting part to this is trading spreads and volume were low. Volume in particular was the third most uh, important reason, and it dropped to like eight or nine. And is that a sign that investors are getting a little better about looking at the holdings and ETF implied liquidity? Or is there some other explanation for that? No, I think that's that's kind of the evolution of the ETFs and, and the, the maturation of the ETF product, right? I think Early on, you know, people were really concerned about volume, you know, making sure these products traded well, making sure there were tight spreads. 
I almost think, especially with the, the most liquid ETFs and, and looking at different ETFs that trade, it's almost a given that there is tight spreads and there's, you know, pro- pro- uh, investors can come in and out of these products in, in, in you know, in, in, in a cost effective way. So I think that's, that's the, kind of the evolution of the ETF market as how investors are looking at uh, different selection criteria, that it's almost a, a given that, they, that there's liquidity in the, in the market, and there's volume to support that. So what do you make of the fact that what Eric is referring to uh, as an answer to this question, the question was, what is the most important factor when selecting an ETF? Expense ratio ranks number one in the U.S., but that is like a distant fifth in Europe, uh, and it's a, it's in sixth place in greater China. Europe puts tax efficiency first, trading spread second. Greater China has index methodology first, trading volume second. I'm sort of surprised that regionally there seems to be a difference in what you're looking for in ETFs. But what what about what about Europe, for instance? Yeah, I think because you know the U.S. market is the most liquid when you're comparing the different regions in the ETF market, that investors have gotten by that in the U.S. market and that they 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 see that there is liquidity in that market. I think as you move over to Europe and into Asia, there's still questions about liquidity and making sure that there is enough volume on the local exchanges to support those uh, ETFs. You know, the, the, it's like almost like they're they're still a couple years back from where completely. But you also have the fragmentation of the market over in Europe too. Fragmentation, right? so, you yeah, know. Right. So if you think about there's fragmentation of across the the different exchanges across the uh, you know 28 different exchanges in the European marketplace. So. You know, whereas in the U.S. you have centralized uh, liquidity on a, on a few exchanges, uh, so you're fracturing that as you're going into Europe. So investors are more keen on looking at trading volumes, looking at spreads as they're making it, making investment decisions. By the way, what's what is Greater China in the survey? It's Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, and mainland China. Um, that fragmentation is a huge issue. Every time I go to Europe, they always talk about the consolidated tape. They want to put it all on one so that the volume looks more realistic, but it's very difficult. When you have all these different countries, it's harder as a data person, as a research analyst. I feel for Rebecca and Henry who cover those areas for us. U.S. is so, we're spoiled. It's just one country, one currency, um, and, and the volume and Eric, data is really good. And Eric, I would also add that over in Europe, it's a huge OTC market too, right? So yeah, a lot too. of the trading volume is done off exchange, right? So you don't have that liquidity of those prints on the exchange as you do here in the U.S. market as well. Uh, for sure. That's one of the headwinds over there. I also, I want to actually add another thesis or theory to your question, Joel, which is that um, I feel like if you look at where fees and the, the, the flows uh, travel south the quickest, it's in countries where the government has pushed the people to like plan their own retirement. So they got to be like a little more like heads up. Whereas in, in, other, in many other countries, a lot of people are just like, the government's got me. I don't really need to care that much. But once this is your money, I think uh, defined contribution plans in particular pushed Americans to become a little more savvy and also the move to the fiduciary advisor. Once the advisor gets a percent of the assets instead of paid off by the mutual fund company, they're going to put the expense ratio much higher because now it's coming out of their uh, pot too. Would you agree with that, Sean? Most definitely. You know, the financial advisory market here in the U.S. is is so much more evolved in the versus in the European market and, and Asia market as well. So that that's definitely an area of potential growth in those markets as the financial advisory committee or um, community starts to grow in, the, in those geographies that that could be a, a good, um, you know, tailwind for the ETF market. 
So the other note I wrote about this survey, Joel, was that BBH is predicting that global ETF assets will hit $30 trillion. I was going to ask about this. Yeah, I mean, right now they're at nine. Okay, that's a lot of trillions. It's, uh, hey, we should name the podcast after this, yeah, something like that. <laughs> In um, hindsight, the trillions <laughs> thing looks really good. I know. It, that was your idea. Okay, so $30 trillion is a lot of trillions. Is Bluebrick Intelligence north of that or, or south of that? So the note said that BBH's $30 trillion call will in parentheses, eventually, come true. I just don't know if 10 years is might take longer. And I'll, I'll, Here's why, Sean. The main reason is market appreciation. We just came from a, a, a decade where the stock market went up like 20% a year, and it was just so so much above average. This, this reversion to the mean of historical returns could mean a lot of years where it's not up or down. And if you don't have that market appreciation, I don't think flows get you there. The other thing is what I said earlier, where I think some of these countries and their mindset and plumbing is so in, ingrained, it might even take 20, 30 years for some of that plumbing to loosen up so that the all the ETFs are on a level playing field with other types of structures. Yeah. So if you look at the 30 trillion number, that, that would have to grow at about a 14% annual rate. And I think what we factored in, in there is this conversion from mutual funds into ETFs. And that could help springboard some of that growth rate. And if you just look at net flows, you know, like looking at last year's net flows, ETFs were up about $860 billion. Mutual funds had uh, net outflows about $820 uh, billion of, of assets as well. So we're really looking at this more shift from mutual funds into ETFs, right? And whether that's through mutual fund to ETF conversions or more and more Invest, investors selling mutual funds to buy ETFs, which we've seen as, as a trend uh, in our survey result, results as well. So conversions have come up a couple times already. Let's just talk about what the survey indicated on that. Um, we've talked about conversions a lot. This is mutual fund conversions to ETFs. Uh, what did the survey reveal? We didn't have any particular questions around the mutual fund ETF conversions, but what we did see, you know, looking at just the, the number of conversions that have happened and just the number that are in the pipeline, there are going to be major mutual fund managers doing conversions into, into, from mutual funds into ETFs. And if you also just look at the number of active ETFs coming to market, last year that represented, you know, about a 30% increase in the number of active ETFs. So these traditional mutual fund managers that said, hey, we're never going to launch an ETF are now launching ETFs because they know they need to have that product in their in their product lineup. So I think that's where we're seeing potential opportunities, not only obviously market appreciation, but also the, just the pure number of, of new entrants coming in this space and, and, and basically taking away from the mutual fund market. Yeah, and I will say, um, I actually used that in my, can, uh, I was just on a uh, Canada tour, and one of the points I made was that BBH has $30 trillion. JP Morgan predicted the U.S. market to hit $15 trillion in the next five years. And Bank of America two years ago predicted $50 trillion global by 2029. Um, my point wasn't, are they going to all come true? My point was, A, they're directionally correct. I think we can agree. But here's some real inside Wall Street firms now making these predictions and putting out product. Morgan Stanley jumped in. This is big boy money, right? So I, I, to Sean's point, if you get a lot of those clientele, a lot of those FAs, plus the blob of money that's in mutual funds, let's say half of it comes over, you could get close even without a lot of market appreciation. 
But again, last year was in 2021, the flows were 900 billion, and that was a record. Well, in order to get to 30 trillion from nine, you know, you, you would need more than that every year. So that's the only reason I'm a slightly cautious, but I'm certainly with you in spirit, and I think you'll eventually see 30 trillion, no doubt. So what about commodity ETFs? Because we've talked about fixed income ETFs a ton on the program, like, and, and they've become more and more prevalent. But we haven't spent as much, quite as much time talking about commodity ETFs. And I think just with the overall economic environment that we're in right now, there's increasing interest. So what did the survey reveal about commodity ETFs? Well, if you, if you look at the commodity ETFs last year, I think seven of the top 10 performing uh, uh, ETFs were commodity based. Right. And I think that's that's kind of a typical move to when there's volatility in the market, you know, uh, investors moving to different asset classes like commodities. You know, I think if you look at uh, the investor results, you know, 69 percent plan to maintain or increase their allocations to commodity te- uh, ETFs in the next 12 months with about, you know, about half of those. So 33 percent saying they're going to increase their allocation to commodity ETFs. So I think that, you know, that kind of bodes well for continuing, uh, you know, assets coming into commodity space. And especially with vol- you know, volatility in the marketplace, I think those, those commodity ETFs will, will, go- will gather some assets. Um, okay, let's turn to thematic ETFs. Themes were really big back in the low rate era. Um, you know, like themes like ARC and innovation, uh, clean tech and all that. Now, Everything's flipped, so you do have natural resources doing well because they are full of value stocks. But it does seem like the thematic play tends to be more with growth. So I was surprised to this result, which is that you have um, respondents saying that in three years, what percentage of your portfolio will be in thematic ETFs? In the U.S., about 43% say over 11%. That seems a little high for me. Um, And then the other one is in China, it's over 80%. Like they must, they love their themes over there, I guess. But those, both those numbers seem a little high relative to flows and anecdotal. I'm not saying it's crazy high, but what, what's your thought there? Um, well, well, first of all, the, all the investors that participate in the survey are, are users of ETFs, right? So if they are not users of ETFs, we've, we're not including them. So right out of the gates, there's, there's that population that aren't investing in ETFs today. Um, you know, so this incre- you know, typically inflates the numbers here a little bit. But I, I do think thematic ETFs, especially last year, had a, a little bit of a uh, dip in, in market appreciation. But I think as more and more uh, investors are coming into you know to, to this year, they'll be looking for different ways to invest their their assets into into new different asset classes. And I think thematic e- ETFs is one area where you know investors looking to diversify away from market capital um, type of products, they'll be moving into into more thematic ETFs. Also thought it was interesting what some of the strategies in the thematic ETFs that resonate. Obviously, internet and technology are, are a big one, but artificial intelligence came up as one that would be particularly interesting in, in the U.S. And, and in greater China. Uh, what did you make of that? Well, I think that's that's a, obviously a huge growth area across, you know, just not even financial services, but across how different firms are using AI to improve their, you know, back office operations. So I think, you know, investors are trying to figure out ways to capitalize on, on that growth in, in, into the AI community. Um, and that, that, that obviously will, will, will kind of bode well for those types of products in the, in the future. And, and wh- how, why do you think the uh, Americans are so much more bullish on cannabis than everybody else? That was another one that jumped out at me. 
I think it's just, you know, the evolution of the ETF market, right? There's a lot more cannabis uh, type of ETFs here in the U.S. market. Um, and once again, that's another, you know, asset uh, class that investors are looking, you know, some, some investors are looking to get some exposure to. Whereas over in, in you know, Europe, you know, there's a, a few products there, but I don't believe there's any um, over in, in, in Asia yet. All right, let's move to ESG, my favorite topic. Um, what what surprised you here? It, it it does it doesn't surprise me when I see surveys way over optim being way over optimistic on ESG, and I'll tell you why, Sean. It's not your fault. Nobody filling out a survey wants to be judged. That's typically why po- political polls can be off. You don't really want to share that you're voting for this one person. So, in this case, you have forty five percent of U.S. investors say they want to increase their exposure to ESG, that's a lot of money. I know Europe is good, but Europe's almost fake. They just relabel it ESG, and the government pushes everybody there, and it's a, it's not natural. U.S. is a natural market. And last year, U.S. ESG ETFs accounted for 1% of flows. This year, there's outflows. Why? They're underperforming. I think the underperformance, because they tend to be overweight tech and growth, which is, not, is you know, now value and energy had such a good run. I think that underperformance, just like we saw of currency hedged ETFs, is going to have a lot of once bit and twice shy going on. In other words, even if ESG has another run where tech and growth outperform and they look good, I think the tourists are shaken out for good. I think you might have a small niche of 2-3% market share of true believers. Um, I've stood by this call for six, seven years, even before it was cool. Now some more people have been somewhat critical of ESG. But that's my theory. So I'm not surprised these are the results, and I'm not saying this is wrong. I just think people are going to generally say, yeah, because they don't want their name attached to somebody who doesn't like ESG because then it's going to be like, what, you don't like this stuff? Are you a bad person? Yeah, There's Eric, a lot to react to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Eric, I think this is definitely one of probably the surprising results from the survey, you know, because I... I don't know if investors are putting, um, you know, taking action or putting money where their mouth is uh, as it relates to this response. You know, however, to your earlier point, it's definitely a different world over in Europe. If you look at flows into Europe, about 65% of flows last year were, you know, titled ESG ETFs, and they have about 19% of the market share over there. So I think that's that's an area that is, you know, obviously embracing ESG type of products. I think there's definitely been a, you know, a pullback in the U.S. market, especially in this this first half of the year with concerns around greenwashing, uh, you know, index providers reclassifying some of their their indices uh, that were previously ESG that are no longer ESG. And then, you know, some large institutional investors kind of, you know, pulling pulling back on their investments into ESG products. So I completely agree with you on that one. Okay, so time for one of my favorite big takeaways, which was the use of robo-advisors has tripled in the last year. That kind of, from from 10% to 29%, I thought that was phenomenal, Sean. And, and I, I wondered why you thought that happened. Obviously, this has been around for a second, but like, why all of a sudden has, has the robo-advisor seems to be gaining appeal? I think it's just, you know, with more and more, you know, self-directed investors, you know, managing their money, you know, robo-advisors, you know, they're, they're a cheap way to kind of, you know, have, have some professional advice. 
And I think ETFs obviously play a role in that with just the underlying assets and the robo-advisors. And so I think that's what's really driving that is more of maybe the younger investors that are coming in looking for advice, uh, embracing more you know, robo-advisor platforms. All right, let's turn to active ETFs. This is a section which lines up with the flows perfectly. So the question is, do you plan to increase your allocation to active ETFs this year? In the U.S., 39% say increase. Well, Joel, this year, active ETFs have captured about 33% of the flows. That's pretty close. Last year, they captured 14% of the flows. That's big numbers for something that only makes up 5% of the assets. So active ETFs finally having their day. I have a theory on this, Sean. I'd like to get your theory on why active is finally taking off because, remember, Remember, you've been in this industry for a while. It was supposed to be the year of active like 10 times in a row. And finally, it happened. <laughs> and I think here's I think two things. One, the regime change. Fundamentals mattered. And active tends to be more fundamentally weighted and interested in fundamentals, so they did a little better. Number two, these big firms like JP Morgan, Avantis, DFA came into the industry and came out with low-cost active. And if you, we did a study, we looked at the active share, which is how different it is from the benchmark, the more, the less active share it has, the lower the fee is. In other words, these funds are being priced in a beta-adjusted way so that you're really only paying for the active, not the beta, which can now be gotten for free. And I think this was the problem for a lot of the entrants up until now. They were charging you for the beta too. And I think advisors didn't really, they weren't responding to that. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think you're 100% right on with some of these these. Uh you know, large mutual fund managers coming in this space, creating these active ETFs. It's creating more, uh, you know, demand in the marketplace, and, and and you know they are being priced lower than their their mutual fund brethren. You know, so I think that's all, you know, what's driving some of this this growth and just the pure number of launches that we're seeing. Right, so the number of active ETFs that came out last year increased by thirty percent of just new products coming to market. And so these mutual fund managers, they, you know, they see the outflows uh, into the mutual funds. And they know they need to have an ETF um, you know, to be competitive for a certain type of uh, investor type, which is growing. OK, let's have a little fun. Um, I know there's this interesting relationship between advisors and the wholesalers. So you actually had this section here, which I wasn't expecting. It was kind of cool. There's a Zoom boom going on, Joel. They don't want to. De- they don't want to see you anymore. If yeah. you're an, if you're a wholesaler, they want you to just Zoom them. Click, maybe email me a link. Yeah, it it seems like a lot of in person stuff. At, maybe it's just because of the COVID, or because there's so many issuers, they get inundated. What's your take on why that has grown so much versus the in person wholesale kind of meeting? Well, I think, you know, we are, we're going to be living in this hybrid uh, world, you know, going forward, right? And I think, um, you know, just like financial advisors, you know, they, they like to get in and get out of meetings. And this is a very efficient way to do that. I think when you're thinking about from a wholesaler perspective, it can be, you know, less time on planes and having more fruitful meetings with advisors. However, there's a cost to that. So how do you build up those relationships? And so, um, you know, I think there's still going to be need for that in-person relationship to kind of really move the needle. But I, I do think this hybrid world that we're in, that more and more wholesalers will be connecting with advisors through through the use of Zoom. Yeah, but do you, do you get the golf balls if it's over Zoom? You don't get the golf balls, do you? Well, you still have bail. You can still bail those out. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best of both worlds. Look, you got 10 minutes on Zoom. Just mail me the Pro V1s. Okay. 
So, Sean, uh, lots of surveys. You've done lots of surveys. Uh, I've done lots of surveys. Eric wishes he's done lots of surveys. The thing with a survey is that you get the results back and you're like, what popped? What surprises me? Um, so I'm curious, when you got these results in, what was the thing that surprised you most? You know, I, I still think uh, one of the things that surprised me is, you know, n- nearly half of the investors still plan to add cryptocurrency and digital assets into their into their portfolios, right? And I think that is uh, a shocking, you know, number, you know, just given, you know, the volatility in that, that asset class, right? And so... Wasn't it so that they could short it, though? Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> that does seem high. Yeah, I was surprised to see that as well. But do, do you but think they wanted I had to come off... Of like, oh, if it was, you know, something I could more easily short, that would be great. Yeah, that, that is... that. It, I don't know. What do you make of that? I Truly, I think part of it was that, but it's also like, look, like, after something gets this beaten down... This gets to the whole thing that we talk about a lot, where you have a lot of things that are so safe and predictable. It's like, where's the hot sauce? And like, maybe if somebody got lucky and had some hot sauce, shiny object, right? Yeah. I mean, crypto, it's just, it had such a bad year uh, performance-wise with SBF, but you know, it, it went up again. I mean, it's like a cockroach. You cannot kill it. Like it's it just. But you can't easily treat it either. I know, and it does tend to have. Uh, it, you know, the correlation is could be valuable to. I get it. I'm just surprised with. I this, guess this you, audience. Well, too, right. This I, isn't like well, a Sean. Here, here's a theory. Because you're interviewing people who use ETFs, you're probably, you're probably actually tilting towards younger people, and early adopter types, who probably are more interested in crypto than if you interviewed a bunch of, I don't know, people who hold mutual funds or something. I mean, that, that could be it too, but we also have a number of institutional investors that are looking to increase their their exposure to crypto as well, right? And, and I do think it is, you know, um, for, not for the faint of heart, but certain investor types that are looking at it as a diversification away from, you know, a new asset class that, they, that potentially could create some returns, right? And, you know, to your earlier point, you know, Bitcoin was at fifteen thousand, and you know it's at thirty thousand or so today. So it's some real returns uh, in 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 the first half of the year. So Sean, you, we actually touched on two things that my team and I we nerd out on this question. It's like a it's like this is what ETF nerd comedy is like in our persistent chat. What do you think will happen first, the consolidated tape in Europe or a spot Bitcoin ETF in the U.S.? Wow, that's that's a tough question there. That is wow. How, isn't this from, from the specificity nerd, of that from the awesome? Vault, from the nerd vault, yeah. I would have to go with the consolidated tape in Europe. <laughs> All right, good. At least you gave an answer. I think I think a spot ETF. I think if Gensler moves on, I think it opens the door probably a little more. But you may be right. Okay, Sean. Final question, one that we often ask on trillions. Favorite ETF ticker other than anything that Brown Brothers Harriman is affiliated with? Well, that's a tough, tough question there. Um, you know, I, I think uh, Toke is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting. <laughs> Bringing uh, it back to there. the cannabis answer. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. By the way, did you you know what the expense ratio in Toke is? I don't know it offhand. No. It's 42 basis points, but on the Bloomberg DS page, it goes to three decimals, so it's 420. <laughs> that's my favor. You got to love that yeah. sort of artistry that was embedded into the not, ETF. I love that. Qu- not a coincidence. Uh, Sean McNinch, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weppershow. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.